Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, I'm interviewing Todd McComas. Now, he's got a quite an eclectic background, just a, an interesting combination of, of professions that he's, uh, that he's done in his life. Uh, we're going to talk kind of the first half about his career in law enforcement, what got him involved in law enforcement. Uh, he eventually became a detective with the Indiana State Police, which, of course, I'm from Indiana. Um, we're going to talk about kind of just... The whole his whole law enforcement career, spending over twenty years as a as a state trooper, uh, how he kind of started the state police, um, their wiretapping and surveillance department, and just kind of how that all came about, and uh, some of the most interesting cases he's been a part of, all of that, which is plenty engaging and plenty amazing just to listen to all on its own. But the second half of the interview, we're going to talk about how he transitioned after 20 years uh, or more in law enforcement to actually becoming a stand-up comedian, which is a very interesting combination of two uh, career paths. We're going to talk about how that happened and how uh, Pat McAfee, who was a, uh, a puncher for the Indianapolis Colts and now is kind of a a uh, radio show host on, on kind of a sports radio with YouTube, uh, a comedian in his own right, too, how he's kind of involved in, in this transition. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, just what he learned from being a stand-up comedian, how that kind of ties into his career in law enforcement. We're going to talk about his podcast that he now has. He has a, a few of them, and just kind of that true crime genre and comedy that he's uh, – living in now we're going to talk about how he is involved in the tiger king world too just a lot of amazing things to talk to todd about this week i think you're really going to enjoy him uh, i saw him uh several months ago in uh as a stand-up comedian amazing guy I knew i had to speak with him uh without further ado here is my interview with todd mccomas i'm here today with todd mccomas todd how are you i'm great buddy thanks for having me on Absolutely. Thanks for joining me. I, I'll tell you, I, I wanted to reach out to you because you have a, a super interesting story, which we're going to get into. Somehow you combine comedy and previous work in law enforcement. But before we get to that, I kind of want to ask you just a little bit about growing up. That's kind of where we always start, you know, and I kind of know a little bit of your story because I've actually seen your stand up <laughs> and uh, you grew up kind of in, in small town, Indiana. So talk a little bit about that. I did. I mean, I grew up on a farm like it was uh, my grandpa's farm, just a little bitty farm that he just kind of always ran on the side. Uh, and initially, when I was a little kid, we lived in a trailer in the front yard of my grandparents house. So my my dad got out of the, the Marine Corps after Vietnam and he put up a trailer in my grandparents front yard. And then when I started kindergarten, we moved into the little farmhouse that, that my grandpa finally fixed up enough to make it livable. And uh, we moved there. So I stayed there until halfway through seventh grade. And then we moved into town, I guess you would call it, a town of maybe 300 people. So that's about as big as it got to me until later in life when I 
finally moved to Indianapolis. Yeah. And I think just not too far further in life that, uh, Maybe you you were I don't want to say misguided, but I know that you said that you uh, maybe got into a little bit of trouble, and that's what sent you into the military. Is that right? Yeah, you know what it was was I was just undisciplined. Like I was, I was good at sports, but you know I was never going to be able to go pro or even to a major college level. You know, I got offered a a little scholarship at a junior college for baseball. But I, I just blew everything off. I, I, I knew I could tell by the time I graduated that, man, I am not going to keep a job for more than a few months. I'm going to bounce around. I just don't have any stick to if that's a word. And my dad, you know, had been a Marine. Like I said, he was in Vietnam and my grandpa was in the army. Like everybody in my family had been through the military. So I had this strong urge to see what that was like, but also knew I can gain some discipline there. When I come out, I'll be better at sticking to things and carrying them through. And that's what I need in my life. Unless I want to live forever in my parents' basement. And I picked military police. So I thought, well, that, that sounds cool, you know? And, uh, it wasn't, it was very boring to be honest. I just guarded shit all the time. And uh, it's like being a security guard, but in doing so, because we lived in Texas, my reserve station was in Dallas and we got activated during the Gulf war. Hmm. So we got put on active duty. So I ride out a year in the fleet as an active Marine and I'm stationed with all these other military police reservists who are Dallas Fort Worth cops. Texas uh, DPS, which is highway patrol, you know, all, all these other city and county police officers, that's their full-time gig. And when we're sitting around just shooting the shit and drinking beer or, you know, occupying a, a guard post together, they're telling these amazing stories of car chases and foot pursuits and, you know, these funny things that happen. And just, you know, it's like what you see in the movies, but you're hearing it from these people who live it. And I was like, Whoa, I want to go get me a piece of that. So I made my mind up whenever this war is over and I get deactivated and I get sent back to college, I'm going to go to school for criminal justice and I'm going to try to be a cop. And that changed everything from there. Absolutely. For sure. For sure. Yeah. You, you finished with the military, you, you did the military police thing that kind of made you want to kind of get into that work. Was Indiana State Police your first stop in law enforcement, or did you did you work at some you know other other department? Talk about that. I well, I applied at every department I could get my hands on. I probably applied at twelve other agencies before. I actually was getting hired by the Kentucky State Police before that, and I injured my hand and had to get surgery, hmm. and the doctor wouldn't release me to go to the academy when the academy was to start. So again, I thought this, this is all I ever wanted to be. I thought, you know, my parents lived in Kentucky at that time. My dad got transferred again. And I really looked up to the Kentucky state police because they were really kind of king shit of law enforcement in Kentucky. You know, so many small burgs and rural counties, but you would see these troopers and they looked sharp. They were all in shape and, you know, all other law enforcement looked up to them. And that's really, I'd made my mind up. That's where I wanted to be. And I thought, 
when I didn't get released to the Academy, I was like, you know, the dream's over. I'm, I kind of went through a period of depression for a little bit where I'm like, well, law enforcement's not going to happen for me. I missed my shot. And I started, I became a sign maker, I was making good money. I was decaling race cars and making signs. I got engaged to, to be married to my son's mom. And then they, I saw an advertisement for the Indiana State Police that they were hiring. And I thought, you know what? I'll take one last stab at it. And if this doesn't work out, I'm just going to kill that dream. I, I'll never pursue it ever again. And I'll just figure out something else. And I applied, went all the way through the process and got hired. And it worked out so well. I got to do every cool thing, literally, that I ever wanted to do in law enforcement. Now that's that's really cool. And I know probably early in your career, I know you settled into detective work and doing some really cool things there, but talk about those first few years. I don't know whether you were, you know, in a in a small town where you know you kind of are the only police force or whether you were somewhere bigger where you're kind of just manning the highways. Talk about that. I, I was fortunate in that they sent me because you get three picks of posts throughout the state of Indiana. And you prioritize them, your, your, your favorite three, in order from first to third. Hmm. And I had picked, I think, Indianapolis as my favorite. But when I went to the academy, we were called a riverboat class. We were getting the, the gaming boats, the gambling boats for the first time in Indiana. Hmm. So they funded three classes, the riverboat gambling enforcement group or whatever it did. So we were bought and paid for by riverboat gambling. And that meant that we were required to go to a district or a post that had a boat in it, at least one boat, because we were going to have to work that boat for one year as part of our commitment. Mm -hmm. And I chose Versailles, Indiana, which is about as rural as you can get in Indiana. So I go there and I get trained up, released on my own, and I am in exactly where I had pictured myself with Kentucky state police. I mean, I'm, I'm patrolling by myself in, in towns that maybe have a town marshal, maybe seven members on their sheriff's department for the entire County. And then I'm the state trooper. And when anything significant would happen, they would look to me or the other troopers assigned to that County for help. You know, we had resources they didn't have. They considered us, more highly trained and more knowledgeable. So they look to us to handle bigger things. And I loved it. I loved working with small town police officers. First of all, they're undervalued because they're among the most well-rounded cops that you can find because they, they don't have a specialty. You know, if there's a murder, they're working it. If there's a child molest, they're working it. If it's a check fraud, they're working it. And they get to, to learn diversity that way. They're well-rounded police officers. And I, therefore I became one because those were the kind of cases I was working and I had to do my one year on the gambling boat. So I'm like two and a half years when that year is running up. And I, in that time, I got to work 15 months on the road as a trooper in uniform and 13 months on a gambling boat, wearing a suit as if I was just a member of the gaming commission, you know, just watching old people pull slot machine handles all day. <laughs> and I uh, put in for a detective's job out of Indianapolis just because 
the older guys, the older troopers that run the boat were like, Hey, you need to start practicing for taking the promotional test. Cause one day, 10 years from now, you're going to want to be a detective or you're going to want some other job and you need to be good at interviewing and doing well during that, that competition phase. So I just took it for the practice. You know, I took mm-hmm. the test, got picked to do the interview and I competed against eight other troopers for this one detective job in Indianapolis. And they all had like 15, 17 years on. I had two and a half and I got the job. Like I beat out all these guys and all those old troopers that I'm working with. They're like, what the hell? How did you get that job? And I'm like, I don't know. You guys told me to go compete and I competed and I got it. So then the realization sit in though, like, oh shit, I got to go to the big city now. I got to go be a detective in the big city. I've been, you know, working. I I worked a case where a guy had sex with a chicken. Like those are the kind (laughs) of stuff you would run into, you know, and like rednecks beating the hell out of each other, burglaries, whatever, things like that. And I go to this post in Indianapolis to be a detective in this, our metropolis city. And you know what? I was more rounded, more well-rounded than a lot of the troopers that had been there a long time because in that, at that post, because you're in the big city, there's so many large agencies there that don't need you. You're kind of highway patrol. You're just writing tickets and working crashes on the interstate. Well, I came from a place where if there was a burglary to be worked that morning, when you marked on, you wouldn't worked it. If there was, you know, a robbery or any, something like that, you worked it. And then if you needed the detective, you could ask for guidance, but if it wasn't somebody getting killed or sexually assaulted, then it was yours. And therefore I had a lot more criminal investigative experience than a 15 year trooper who had only worked Indianapolis. So I, I fell into it pretty quickly and I loved it. I had a passion for it. Definitely more so than working in uniform. And I did that for the rest of my career, one kind of detective job or another. Okay. (laughs) So once you moved to, to Indianapolis, um, you you kind of mentioned that obviously there's a lot of lot of agencies here obviously the you know the metropolitan police i'm sure it was i it was ipd and maybe the sheriff's office at that point um but there was already a lot of a lot of people in the area so what does a detective for the state police do in this particular region well i got lucky again because i was from shelby county indiana which is you know a suburb area of indianapolis it borders marion county which is also indianapolis and they assigned me to Shelby County primarily. So instead of having to work in Indianapolis and Marion County, my sergeant at the time, who used to be the state police detective for Shelby County, saw me as a Shelby County boy. He coveted that position. It was the position everybody wanted. And he said, but I want this to go to a Shelby County guy. So I got it. And he took me immediately to the sheriff's office and he introduced me to their captain and to the sheriff, and they gave me a desk. They had at that time three detectives, and there were four desks, and they said, this one's yours. And you, he said, you will only take cases from this captain. Don't worry about state police cases. He's like, we don't, we don't get really good cases in Indianapolis. This is the way it was. We got hand-me-downs from IMPD and the Marion County Sheriff's Department at the time before they merged. So 
well, if we got something left, it was like something they didn't want to work on or it involved like complicated multi-jurisdictional issues or something like that. So now I'm assigned to this rural county, but where it's located, still plenty of cool stuff going on because it's close to Indianapolis. And in exchange for working the more complicated or pain in the ass cases for them, soon that captain started also giving me the big cases. I mean, I took to it well. I was solving good cases quickly and he valued me. So if it was a really complicated case, I took it off his hands. If it was a really good case that you could really, you know, a detective would want to sink their teeth into and make a lot of arrests from it and get in the paper or on TV, he would give that to me or make sure that I was working in tandem with one of his detectives. So for a good five years, I had it made. And then numbers started to dwindle as detectives retired, budgets were getting cut. So they, they weren't replacing those jobs. And it reached a point at one point where there was only two of us for the, for the whole post, two detectives, two detectives and two supervisors, which is weird. Like we all we each had our own supervisor, <laughs> but, uh, so then I was stuck working wherever they needed me in the four County area. But up until that point, it was great. And, uh, you know, we worked when I was a detective there, you know, I'd have to work some bullcrap cases, like I said, but also I think I worked five murders, not by myself, but as part of a team. So, you know, a murder is when you're a detective, that's kind of like the Olympics, you know, that's, that's the granddaddy of them all. And you learn so much by working those. So that was invaluable. I, I worked several bank robberies. Hell, we worked a kidnapping where we actually saved, like real time, saved a kidnapping victim who was being held for a quarter of a million dollar ransom. And they were going to kill her. Like their, their whole plan was to kill her. And we actually figured out where they were, hit the hotel room, went in there. She was duct taped up, bound in the restroom. And there was a guy gardener with a gun. And we saved her like that. That never happens. Right. Like never. And, uh, you know, the guy ended up confessing that his instructions were to kill her, you know, because even if they got the ransom, because she was a witness, she had seen them. It turns out she, she knew them. She was, she got involved in drugs and they were, they were her drug dealers basically, but they found out she had a rich father. And that's, that's really that one case right there. That was before I even worked any murders. I was still pretty young. That was the case that changed my whole outlook on law enforcement. I was like, that was the case where I was like, you know what? This is real. It doesn't really matter where you work. You could be a two person department. Inevitably, you're going to have that one case where you're going to change somebody's life forever. You're going to save somebody's life. And that's the closest you can get to being immortal. In my opinion, her life and her family's life is forever benefited from you having been in it, you know, for that one night. And it changed everything. I was like, my, whatever happens in my career, this made it all worthwhile. Yeah, no, that's, and that's, that's powerful for sure. You know, when in this time, was it once you went back to kind of the outside of Shelby County or when did you start, you know, dusting off, I guess, some uh, surveillance and wiretapping things? I think that's what you kind of settled into, right? Yeah, that's where I spent the majority of my career. So I think 
close to seven years of being a shirt and tie detective. I, uh, you know, I, I'd done everything I wanted to do. I'd worked several murders. I'd worked a bunch of bank robberies and that kidnapping and, you know, and then, then you get to a point where nothing's as new anymore. You know, it's just more of the same. So you look to challenge yourself and I, I had worked a couple temporary assignments with our drug enforcement section. And I had friends that I went to recruit school with and stuff that worked there and to help them out before the captain at the time who was in charge of the drug enforcement section, or I'm sorry. Yeah. The captain, he called me and said, Hey, we're going to have an opening come up and I would like for you to put in for it. You know, he liked working with me. I helped him several times and he said, you know, I'm not going to tell you you're going to get the job, but you know, your, your chances are strong. So I put in for it and I got it. And that was that was my favorite time on the Indiana state police working undercover for one, you know, at first it's cool. Cause you can grow your hair out. You can grow facial hair. You can wear shorts to work every day, ball cap, whatever you want. And you, you have to be, it's a whole different way of thinking, you know, for one, you got to convince people that you're one of them, that you're, you're a criminal also. And two, you get to really, from the inside, see why crime happens, like why people choose crime, how they set things up, what their motivation is, how they hide their money, you know, the inner workings of crime where as a shirt and tie detective, it's more reactive. You learn from interviewing the people and getting confessions and, you know, putting together clues and things like that. But this was like real time you spending intimate time with these people who are committing the crimes and totally living inside their brain. Then we moved on to like bigger investigations where we spent most of our time working with the DEA and ATF, to be honest. And we didn't really work a lot of our own cases. We were always on loan to them. So we're helping work cases that tie back to a cartel and stuff here in Indiana, which is crazy to think about. But the cartels reaches everywhere. You know, any big time drug dealer in anywhere in the country is only a couple of degrees of separation from someone in Guadalajara, you know, that works for the cartel once you get high enough. So it was really cool to see the international aspect and how that how things in Mexico, you know, affect things in Morristown, Indiana. So I became one of our wiretap specialists just because I had shoulder surgery and I was kind of on light duty for seven, eight months, I think, before they would release me to go back to work, my regular job. And the alternative was for me to sit in there and, you know, help grade case reports or whatever needed to be done in the office. And quickly I got bored and I was just exploring the office and I get to the storage room. And the guy that ran our tech unit that hands out the listing devices and stuff, he says, well, yeah, I need this room reorganized. I know you only got one wing, but, you know, any light lifting, you need heavy lifting, let me know. And I go in there and there's all these computer systems and cool stuff. And I'm like, what is that? And he said, that's our wiretap system. And it, a lot of it hadn't been unboxed yet. And I go, what's it doing in here? And they're like, well, we got a grant, like a half million dollar grant. And we bought it, but 
we've just never really used it yet. Nobody really knows how to run it. And I'm like, are there instruction manuals? And he was like, yeah, they're in here. So I get the file cabinet and I pull out all the instruction manuals and the books. And I said, how about if I just spend my light duty time learning how to run this system in case we ever need to use it? And he was like, yeah, whatever you want to do, man. So I learned, I, I, we had a maintenance agreement with the company that they bought it from. So I could call them, ask them any questions. So I set up a whole wire room. I took all the storage stuff out of there. We moved it somewhere else. And I made that room a wire room, got everything connected and figured out how it worked. And I said, at some point, guys, I think we can do a wiretap if you ever need to. I, I feel comfortable that I can run it. And so does the company we bought it from. And uh, they said, there's a school. If you send me to the school for like three weeks, then I'll really be good to go. So they sent me to the school. I came back and I was our wiretap analyst after that. So every time we, we did a wiretap, I had to be in on it. For the longest time, I was the only person that knew that end of the job. So it was, uh, it was really, really cool. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. That's interesting for sure. And kind of kind of leads into something else that I, I've heard you say in in other interviews that I think is is important for, for people to to realize. Um, definitely since you worked on in undercover, just like you were saying, that uh you, you had to kind of get into the mind of criminals and you had to uh you saw people not, you know, how they are when they see a uniformed officer, but how they they see their buddies. So I thought it was really interesting that you said something about how you learned that a lot of times good people do bad things and bad people do good things. So it does, you can find good and you can find almost ways to, to like darn near anybody that you're, that you're associating with. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, there were several people that I infiltrated uh, or had an informant of mine introduced me to, and then subsequently infiltrated that if we would have met on a softball field instead of, you know, out there on the street, we would have been friends. You know, it, it just really came down to, we came up differently or circumstances befell that person that a lot of times it's, it's who your role models are. That's what I found. Like in some communities, the people that have status are criminals. Like in some communities, mm -hmm. going to prison gives you status. It, it puts you up here in an elite category among people in that community. Just because they, the only people that had nice cars, that had money to buy shit, big screen TVs, a nice place to live, those people dealt drugs. Or they committed, you know, some kind of crime and everybody, every human being wants status. You know, there are people who avoid it because their upbringing is so strong from their parents that they, they just avoid it, but secretly, you know, they envy it. Those are the role models. And like, that's why I was talking about, like, when you really want to get into causation and, and, and combating crime in a proactive way. You got to start replacing kids role models, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And I think that's an important point to make. You know, I've, I've talked to several people who have, have kind of said that exact same thing. And that's why it kind of really 
struck me. You know, I, I talked to the investigator and the person who caught the Green River Killer, and he talked about how they both grew up two streets away from each other. And there was just one moment that think something made them different. I talked to the attorney for Timothy McVeigh, and he was able to point to one moment that made him change and how things completely changed. Before that, he was on, you know, uh, a military, high military special forces team, and one moment changed everything for him. So I think it's just important to kind of mention that it, it really is just you can't look at people. Oh, well, they just, you know, they're just kind of disposable. They are, you know, just bad people. That's not always the case. And that's generally not the case. Generally not. I mean, I would say very, very, very rarely is a person just born evil or born wanting to be so anti-establishment that they want to rob banks to make their living. It's usually a result of, how they came up. And it's just just as simple as it is. Even if you're a serial killer, usually that's the result of how you came up. Somebody damaged you psychologically and you are compelled to do what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, I do want to get to your, your, the second part of your career because that's, uh, you know, that, that, that makes you extra interesting. You know, I I guess I kind of want to get to what made you leave the state police. And then also before you left, I think that you already had kind of started transitioning into comedy. So how in the world did that happen? Because again, I probably, I've been to every state police post. I deal with darn near every state trooper, but I don't know that any of the other ones are necessarily about ready to start a comedy career. And that's nothing against them. It's very rare throughout the country. I mean, there's maybe a handful of us that were cops for like career cops and that do comedy and I don't know anybody that's even like suppressed, su- surpassed my level at it. And I'm not huge by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, so it's a rare thing. And it came about because after my second divorce, I was dating a girl that uh, went to the ha- same high school as I did. And she was a cancer survivor. So she was con- all the time knocking out things on this bucket list she had from when she got diagnosed and she had gone into remission, but she was like, I'm going to knock out this list because you never know. And she made me make one. And at the top of it was to try stand up comedy. Just I couldn't think of anything to put on there, to be honest. So I put that as number one, because I always loved listening to comedy. You know, my deal, same story. A lot of people have where I would grab my dad's, you know, Bill Cosby album, which that didn't age well, but uh, Robin Williams and George Carlin and Richard Pryor and, you know, all the greats. And I would sneak them out when they would go out with friends and listen to them. Cause I wasn't supposed to listen to them. So when I put that on the list, it was just, I'll never have to do this because I can't, you know, I can't conceivably do it. Well, wrong. She knew a guy who had been doing open mics, who was friends with her, our cousin to her best friend. And she got a hold of him through her and said, Hey, how do I sign my boyfriend up for an open mic at Crackers Comedy Club? And he tells her, she gets on the website, signs me up, and then tells me, Hey, April 25th, you got to go to the open mic and do three minutes. You're on the list. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So I took three days off work to write jokes. And I I invited, I just made a party out of it, invited 
a lot of cops that I worked with and friends and I packed the room with people I knew came out and I got really drunk beforehand. I got so nervous day of my dad and one of my friends and my girlfriend were going to ride with me up to the club. So I, I called them like three hours early and I'm like, we got, we got to go up there and start drinking. We got to go find a bar and start drinking. Cause I'm not gonna be able to handle it. And we did. So I, I got so drunk to be honest. I don't even remember my set hardly, but evidently it was well received. My friends loved it and they kept, they encouraged me to do it again. And I remember afterward, the, the guy hosting the comedy night, he grabbed me up and he was like, listen, you should keep doing this. And I was like, really? Cause I, I looked at him like, Oh, you're a real comedian. And he goes, I'm just telling you, you wrote your own material. They were, they were funny stories. I mean, you, you, they're not perfect yet. It's the first time you've ever done it, but I, I see plenty of potential. You should keep doing this. And that guy is pretty big now. Brent Terhune, uh, he's big on, huge on social media, even, even though he's an Indianapolis comic and he does very well for himself. But if it wasn't for him, I might not have done it a second time. And I kept doing it and it's, it's I got addicted. I started climbing the ladder, getting, getting good. And next thing you know, like Donnie Baker from this huge on the Bob and Tom show, Kostaki Economopolis, people like that were like, Hey, you want to go on the road with me and be my opener? And uh, I'll pay you. And I'm like, you're going to pay me to do comedy. And they're like, yeah. And uh, I would travel with them and get to do big shows. Like, cause they were drawing lots of people and people that loved them. So there were great crowds, you know, there weren't an open mic crowd where, you know, it was like going to warrior school. It was, this was like crowds that loved comedy and were couldn't wait to hear what was coming out of your mouth. And I'm like, this is, this is it. This is so addictive. I need to do what these guys do. I need to do this for a living. And, uh, I worked my ass off at it and, you know, bought into three comedy clubs, took all my savings, gave it to these guys. So I was a partial owner in these comedy clubs. I started booking the comedy club. So now in my mind, this is how I work, right? Just like when I went to the Marine Corps to learn to be disciplined and learn how to manage myself better in life. I was like, I need to get better at the business of comedy. I'm getting funny. People are wanting to see me and take me and put me on shows, but I need to know how the business works if I ever want to do this for a living. So I purposely did that. So now I'm talking with agents every day on the phone while doing my police job. I would be like on a surveillance and, and talking to, you know, I'm watching drug dealers, you know, and taking notes on what they're doing and talking to agents at CAA and William Morris about their comedians that they're trying to book at our clubs huh. and setting up dates for them. So I, I really got to learn, even though our clubs weren't successful and we had like a three or four year run and then we, we sold them. And uh, or closed one and sold two. I I I knew the business of comedy, and I knew some agents. I knew people that could make things happen. And uh, before you know it, I was to a point where I'm like, I could I could almost make the same living as I do as a cop, just doing comedy. So I was seriously considering, you know, leaving on the Indiana State Police. You need to work 25 years to get your full pension. I at that time I was entering. 19, 20 years. And I was seriously considering leaving early and just, you know, take a hit on my pension to go do full-time comedy. And, uh, before I had to come to that decision, 
one summer, which we all in our little circle call the summer of Pat made friends with Pat McAfee. We spent the whole summer with Pat McAfee hanging out and he had, you know, he was doing comedy then. So he really liked uh, myself and my buddy, Sean Latham, who was my roommate at the time. We lived right behind the Indianapolis comedy club that I owned and we would party there all the time and doing comedy every night and all this stuff. And, and Pat would started hanging out and he, he took us on the road with him to be his openers on his tour. And next thing you know, I'm at a Pacers game with Pat, the best punter in the league by far, you know, was could be rich beyond most people's wildest dreams for the rest of his life and be the greatest at what he does in the NFL. And he pulls me to the side and he says, Hey man, I think I'm going to retire after this season and I'm going to take uh, a job where I'm not, not take a job, but I'm going to partner with Barstool sports to create our own affiliate in Indianapolis. And I want you to do that with me. So what do you think about retiring early? You keep talking about it, but what if you did it and came to work for me and help me get this thing going? And I was like, uh, let me think about it. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. I'll do it. Like no question. Hell I've, you know, I was in a shootout like almost a year, not only even a year before that. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get on comedy central. I'm not trying to get shot in some parking lot. That was one of definitely the highlights of my life. The three years solid that I spent working with and for Pat McAfee and everyone else that was under that umbrella awesome like still sometimes when i think about it i get look gets a little smoky you know like i get teared up a little bit Mm. i just had it was such an unbelievable and surreal experience but at the same time so real because pat and everybody else there were just like me just regular people at their core just regular dudes pat some dude who whose dad was a mover in pittsburgh and uh couldn't be more yinzer everyday dude he, he just had a magic leg and he, he, he's an awesome athlete and it changed his life and it changed a lot of lives around him mine included my son who's still there working for him so so i mean what was what was it like i guess you know that we, we kind of talked about you you did that for three years but that moment that you decided to do it, it was, it was a quick yes for you, but what was it like, I guess, telling the, you know, the, the state police said, Hey, I'm really going to quit and do this, this, uh, comedy thing. Obviously you've been doing it on the side for a while. You owned a club. So maybe they were gearing up, but I still feel like that would be an interesting conversation. They very much knew it was coming. Like every, a lot of them had been to my shows multiple times. They followed my career. They would hear me on the Bob and Tom show in the mornings while they're patrolling or whatever and, and loving it. Like they were, they were in it with me, really everyone that was close to me. And, you know, I was a pretty popular guy. Um, cause I, you know, I, I helped my job was to help other people in their cases. So I had a big network of people that I worked with on a regular basis and they were all fans of what I was doing outside of the state police. And when they, that summer of Pat, when they knew that I was hanging out with Pat and had become friends and was doing shows with them and, and all these things, they, they, they just would always ask. They're like, when are you retiring? When are you quitting? 
to go work for Pat or to do whatever. And, and so when the day came, they were like, okay, it's about time. Just, just to try to tie these two things together. I, what, where do you see, you know, your police work and your comedy work? Where can that intersect? Where do you see that you need the same skills to do both of them? Well, it's really all starting to come together now in my career. So Pat was the one that forced me to embrace the cop in me, which was ironic. I was very good at what I did and I was very well known in the police community. And, and that's how he was in football on a much grander scale. Well, when I left police work, I just wanted to be funny. I didn't want to, to talk about police work. I didn't want to deal with it. I, you know, that it consumed so much of my life. I was done with it. Well, Pat was that way when he left football and, and athletics in general, he you know, the guy could have been an Olympic soccer player. Like he's, he'd been an athlete his entire life. So when he was done with that, he was done. But then simultaneously, he was forcing me to embrace the cop in me and, and make content, comedy content for, for our brand, um, Barstool Heartland, it was called at the time. And that was copyrighted stuff. He's like, use this expertise you have that no one else has and be funny with it and do something no one else is doing. Mm. And at the same time, more sports started coming out of him, more football. You know, now he was unveiling the same way he was forcing me to do with police stuff. He was like, Oh yeah, I, I, I do have a lot of inside knowledge on the NFL. And I was a very high level athlete myself. So I know what it's like when I talk to these people, but in addition to that, what he had that nobody else had was he's one of the funniest people in the world. Well, I do that. My, my comedy and my police experience come together now in the same way that his, the athlete impact and the comedy impact come together. Now his is on a way larger scale. He does way better for himself than I do, but, hmm. but now I'm starting to be well-respected in the true crime community. I'm well, I'm getting more and more, you know, I'm building myself here and, you know, I work for a major true crime podcast studio a company now, and then I have my own true crime podcast. And it, what's happening is because I have a unique voice to go along with actual expertise that could stand up to anyone else's pretty much. Now I'm a unique person in that industry and that's going to be my future. So I got this daily show truly because I'm a comedian who has a level of law enforcement experience that very few people in media have. And they wanted me, they wanted me to be the voice to talk about crime and tell the crime news every day on this show. Absolutely. No, I think, I think you're in a, a really good spot for sure. And I want to talk, I guess, about that. Maybe not the documentary you're, you're doing now. I know it's not. Uh, but I want to I let you shout out another documentary that you've done that obviously was kind of a stemmed off of a, a phenom during uh, during COVID. You did a documentary on Tiger King. What's that all about? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I called it a documentary at the time because I don't think I knew enough about documentaries. I, I, I should have called it an exclusive interview, probably, because it was mm -hmm. just me and another guy talking. But Tim Stark, who was a pretty he wasn't, you know. Joe Exotic or or uh, John Ranky, but he was a, a pivotal character in Tiger King, and he lives in Southern Indiana. He was the guy who never had a shirt on and always had a monkey around his neck. Mm 
mm-hmm. and cussed, you know, it was just hilarious. And he was the guy that gave the double flicker fingers at the end to Jeff Lowe. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, you know, obviously during COVID, everybody was talking about Tiger King. And I, I was podcasting. I had three podcasts I was running at the time and I wanted to interview Tim Stark. And I reached out to him on social media and he goes, yeah, I'll talk to you, but I'm not doing this COVID shit where you're, you're I'm sitting in my chair streaming in somewhere. He's like, you have to come to my, to my place. And I'm like, okay. So I go there and I hire a film crew to come with me. And we try to make it like a documentary or some really cool exclusive interview. Cause this guy had his own story to tell. And plus he had a lot of behind the scenes information on Joe exotics world and all the, the stuff surrounding the GW zoo and especially Jeff Lowe. Cause he had gone into business with Jeff Lowe. So it was, he was hilarious. It turned out, turned out well, it did great. I mean, I think I recouped my money. I maybe broke even on it, but I didn't look, I made any money, but a lot of people saw it. And one thing that almost happened from it was somehow a guy at this production company came across it and he looked me up. Well, this company created the TV show, the impractical joker. So we, we have a call and he tells me he's got this great idea and he's like, what do you think? And I added my own thoughts. And before we get done, there's an idea for a show where I get sent all over the country, tracking down all the Tim Starks and Joe exotics of the world and seeing what they got. Just like I did at Tim's. He had Tim, by the way, had more tigers at his place than Joe exotic did hmm. like three times as many. So there, and there was all these people all over the country, just like him. So, and they're all characters. I mean, they're all hilarious and weird and awesome. So um, I'm like, okay, this is exciting. And uh, he's like, yeah, he's like, let's have a, another meeting at, at one o'clock. I'm going to bring in my partner. Da-da-da. So he does. He loves it. We flesh it out even more. And they they literally say, this is a show. This is happening. Be ready. This is happening. They're even throwing out percentages and stuff and what my role would be. And I'm like, okay, here we go. I'm getting a show finally. And uh, they said, the last thing we need to do is we need to have a meeting with our, our rep at CAA who puts the show, our shows to market. And as long, you know, just rubber stamp. He's he always, when we think something's a show, he says, yes, but he said, we have to do that. So let's, can you do that at seven o'clock your time, which is four o'clock LA time. I'm like, yeah, I got it's COVID. I'm just here in my garage, whatever. So we get this meeting and that dude is CAA basically destroys this whole deal in all 30 seconds. He's like too much. It's oversaturated too much tiger King. There's a million people out there trying to do what you're doing. No, not happening. So we got off the phone and I'm like, okay, well now what are we going to do? Who else do we need to get hold of? And they're like, no, no. When that happens, we're done. And I'm like, what? No show. They're like, no, he's, he's the only guy we use. And if he's not going to put it to market, we don't have a show. Hmm. So it was done. And then my booking manager gets all pissed off and he's like, screw them. He's like, well, let's make a live show. Like I did with the impractical jokers and you, you be the host. He's like, you know, all these people, right? And by then I had befriended John Ranke and Saf and all these other people from the tiger King world. So I, 
corral them, get them all on board. Me and another comedian, um, Doug Thompson, write the show with Jeff, my booker. And uh, we get it down. We have a practice show and it goes great. And then we set up a real show and it went great. And I'm like, and I could tell like, this is going to be a really good show because I had fun. That's all I need. If I had fun, it's going to be a good show. And uh, we, we were Gersh agency backed it. We were going to be touring the world and all these things were set up and we had this big full calendar and everybody's going to be making gobs of money and da, 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 da. And then COVID just kept getting worse. Every time, you know, we saw light at the end of the tunnel and these venues are going to start opening up again, there'd be a new wave. And, the, and it just lasted long enough that people legitimately just stopped giving a shit about Tiger King. Well, uh, I guess just a, a moment of levity with that. You know, this whole interview, you've been at the right place at the right time. You've gotten lucky with everything. We're finally hearing just a couple of things you didn't get lucky on. So I guess you're not completely walking <laughs> on water, right? That's right. That's right. But, you know, it's, I always say this, even if something doesn't pay you to do it, if, if it's something that you think it's something you might want to do for money one day, do it. I tell all comedians this like podcasts, it doesn't matter how many people are listening or if you're getting paid to put ads on it or not, get good at it. You get good at it and you never know. Like you might come across somebody like with Pat, like I did with Pat, this Tiger King thing that I did building a live show. Like I'd never done that before. Now I know how to build one. I guarantee you that's going to pay off at some point. There'll be an opportunity where I'll get to create my own live show and I'll know the inner workings of how to create one from scratch. And I, that's how the world works. That's my, anybody that's listening. If you have a passion and you think you might want to make your living doing that passion, do it. doesn't matter how many hours you got to put into it for free. Just do it until you're good at it. And I guarantee you there's a more than decent chance it will pay off later and you're going to get paid for it. Good advice for sure. So tell us, I guess, just uh, your connection points, but then also we, we've, we've had a, a nice timeline. How long have you been doing uh, comedy as a full-time job now uh full-time since i left pat in 2020 so just okay. a couple of years i always had done it part-time which is kind of a blessing and a curse like it's good because i could only take i only had to accept gigs that i wanted to do i didn't have the pressure of all right. I know that it's going to suck and I'm going to drive 20 hours, you know, both ways to, to make $800 just because I need $800. And so many comedians have to do that now because of that, I missed out on part of that, that builds the character, you know, along the way, you know, out of my 13 years in comedy, all, but you know, this last couple of years, part-time. And now it's even part-time for me now too, because my full-time is podcasting. Hmm. So, yeah. So tell us if, if someone does catch a show, um, you know, what, what, what is your, your comedy style? I am a storyteller. So I tell long life stories. I, you know, when I first started, I think all of, most of us are this way. You start with short, little, like just quick formula set up and punch jokes because they're the easiest to create when you're new and you kind of learn the algorithm and it's, you know, it's easy to write once you get the swing of it. 
And it's just simply like da, 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 boom, laugh, boom, bigger laugh. And that, and I go on to the next one. Now it's just, I'm just taking true stories from my life, whether it's things I experienced in my law enforcement career, growing up stories about my parents, my sister, my kid, your girlfriends, ex-wives, whatever, everything from my life that I can find funny. in, I just take to the stage and I just start flushing that out. You know, I tell it, refine mm -hmm. it until eventually it's, you know, a six, seven minute story with a lot of laughs along the way. And that's, yeah. that's pretty much what you get. Like, you know, me pretty well by the time you listen to me for an hour. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I honestly, I wasn't sure I've, I have seen you live one time and you, you, you said, you know, the first time you went out and, and did stand up, you had, you know, all of your buddies, the time I saw you it, pretty much, you knew everyone already in the room. I think I was one of very few people you didn't already know. Um, so I wasn't sure whether that's the normal type of story that you tell, because we learned about you and, you know, wrestling pigs and we learned yeah. about you, uh, you know, getting chased by a, a guy from a cornfield. So I wasn't sure whether that's your normal type thing, but yep. enjoyed I, it. Enjoyed it for sure. Well, I'm glad you did because it's, you know, it's all true stuff. It's just yeah. real things that happened to me. And, uh, you know, these are these are the same stories I tell when I sit down with my family, whether we're all recalling it together or it's something they missed out on. And I think they need to know about or they ask me about what happened when you went to this thing. It's just like that. And I think it's, that's just the only way I know how to do it now is to make people in the room, even though they walk in as strangers and I'm a stranger that walks up on that stage in front of them. By the time I'm done, I want them to feel like they kind of know me mm -hmm. and, um, and therefore definitely to comfortable to come talk to me afterward and hell Anymore at my shows, you know, sometimes my shows are like 60% me talking to the crowd and just whatever happens in the moment happens. So a lot of times I get to know if you sit close enough to the stage, a lot of times I get to know you pretty well too. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I like it here. And that's the reason that I, uh, I had reached out, but I want to get your, uh, everywhere that people are going to be able to find you, your 1041 podcast, um, what that's all about. I, I haven't really had a chance to ask you that how people are going to find that, how they're going to find this day in crime. I think that's what you, what it's mm -hmm. called. Um, and just all your connection points. Yeah. You know, it's a one-stop shop for me. If you go to toddcomedy.com, my website, I put everything that, it, that pertains to my career on there. Like if I have a, you know, a, uh, all my live shows that are coming up, they're all listed on there with links to show information and, and tickets. Both my podcasts are on there with uh, a link in a, in a quick description to let you know what they are. And this day in crime is not available to the public yet, but if you keep your eye on it right now, it's hidden behind a paywall on Tenderfoot TV's plus channel within Apple podcasts, because it, uh, you know, it's big, you know, how BET plus a paramount plus all these streaming channels have a plus package that you subscribe to now for like bonus content or extended content. Well, these big podcast factories are doing that now and they're either partnering with Spotify or Apple, you know, you got your two and, um, 10 foot TV is an Apple partner. It's part of that. They have to maintain a plus channel. So they're now cultivating shows. Like in our instance, it, it starts there for three months and that allows you to though, the benefit of perfecting your show, honing it, 
trying some things and see what sticks and what doesn't. And then by the time it goes public, which this will, I think in June, something, um, you pretty well got everything down and you get the backing of Apple podcasts now. So they give it a extra little boost. So I think that's going to end up, you know, it's a daily show. It's easy to consume. It lasts about 15 minutes. I run up top with, I give you the biggest, the bigger crime stories of the day. I just run through them for you. Sometimes I'm funny along the way if I can be, but I try to keep it quick and entertaining. And then I hand you to my partner, Jessica Knoll, who's a very, very experienced and talented investigative journalist. And she covers in about five or six minutes, a, a crime from history that occurred on this day. So like, you know, this it could be the Martin Luther King assassination. It, it might be some cold case. It just got soft investigative genealogy or something. And then I have a little editorial that I come behind it where maybe I add some insight police wise or, or whatever to the story she just covered or, you know, some little interesting aspect that she didn't have time to cover and then you're done. So that's, I think it's going, I think it's going to be well-received. It's already doing well and it's hidden behind a paywall. So once it's free, I anticipate um, it'll have a pretty, pretty good following. Mm. But all that's on my website. Just something new comes up. It'll go right on the website. Love it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, buddy. Thanks for having me on. This is a good podcast. So uh, if I can throw you some guests, I will. Absolutely. Thank you. So that was Todd McComas. Really enjoyed speaking with him. Amazing guy. I was fascinated by all the stories that he he has just from a, a great career in law enforcement, a you know major career in comedy, uh, just two very distinctly different things that he's been able to merge together and make very successful. I, I really enjoy speaking with him. I think uh, whether you're somebody who likes true crime and likes, you know, um, listening to things like that, we, we talked quite a bit about that. So you got your fill there. Whether you like funny and you like comedy, you learned a little bit about the inner workings of that world too. So just two, uh, two really interesting things to me that we got to talk to Todd about, and he's been able to merge those together. So I really, really appreciated his time today. So glad that he joined me. As he mentioned, go to toddcomedy.com. Uh, that link will also be in the show notes. Check out his podcast, both of them that he does. Check out you know, where he's going to be in, with his shows uh, coming up. I've seen him. Amazing guy. Really enjoyed uh, his stand-up as well. So go check him out if he's coming to a comedy club near you. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, if uh, if you're not already following us on Instagram, please do that. Not in a half podcast. Give us five stars on Apple, five stars on Spotify. Write a review on Apple. Always appreciate that. Uh, but yeah, I I really appreciated Todd's time. I appreciate you being here. Amazing guest for you next week as well. So don't forget to come back and listen to that. Uh, but yeah, thanks for being here and take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.